Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the first episode of The Messy Truth, Conversations on Photography. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a London-based creative focused on making, shaping and thinking about photography and film. This podcast is all about unpacking contemporary photography and helping each other make sense of this ever-changing industry. I'm going to explore all of this in candid conversation with emerging and newly established talent. Today I'm talking to Catherine Highland. For the last 10 years, Kat's been examining our connection to the land, telling stories about the people and places through the spaces they inhabit. Her work delves into human existence, exploring ideas around isolation, tourism, truth, time and discovery. Her images offer a new way to tune into the world. Kat grew up in Nottingham and studied there before completing her MA at the Royal College of Art. She started out photo editing before making the leap to photography and spent the last decade working on her own work while assisting a huge range of photographers learning all aspects of the craft. Well, I used to do a lot of landscape photography all through uni. So I started doing fine art and then I did my MA. Um, And so I was shooting then just straight away, but probably quite clueless, I'd say. Um, And then I picture edited for a while, which I just fell into after my MA and got to, I think I was like 25 and I suddenly just realised that that I didn't have the right temperament for an office. I didn't really enjoy being there at set times. Where were you picture editing? Uh, so I left my MA and then did, I started interning at Wallpaper, but was there at a really strange time where the picture editor had just left and they hadn't found the replacement yet. So I ended up accidentally <laughs> working there. Having a really important job. Than yeah. Um, but then I got a job at New Statesman and started picture editing there. Um, and then got to a point where it was, that was either going to be my career or I was going to, go back to what I'd originally planned um, and got to a moment where they'd offered me a very good job. And then I just decided I had to turn it down then because otherwise that I was never going to go back to what my original intention had been. Um, and everybody thought I was completely crackers because then it went, I went straight to assisting. Um, the first person I started doing it with was a still life photographer called John Short. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can remember the first day, I think he'd let me go and assist just as a favour because we got on and I was cleaning crap off the floor and I felt so happy and liberated to be out of an office and just in a studio that I knew I'd made the right move. And then I started assisting. It was it was quite nice, actually, because it meant that things came full circle. Then I started assisting a lot of the wallpaper photographers because of the connections I had there. So did a total mix. Um, and then I assisted Zed Nelson for a while 
um, and kind of moved around. So it was a complete mix of photographers. Was that purposeful? Yeah, um, it was It was definitely like a calculated decision because I've always enjoyed learning. I'm much, even now, I much prefer being the student than somebody that's having to teach somebody else something. Um, I kind of got a thirst for it that is unquenchable. And so... I was just like, I'm going to learn as much about still life as I can and documentary photography and fashion photography. And then I might never use any of it because I always knew landscape was a thing I was interested in. But I'm definitely kind of of the mindset that it's better to know it and not use it than to be scared when you're going into sets and doing, you know, doing things that are out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And you assisted for a long time. Yeah, I assisted for quite a long time. How it many depends years was it? how you look at it. Um, I think in the end it was about six years, right? Um, six or seven years, and that's not counting people that I worked with when I was studying. Um, but then there's other photographers that they think if you've assisted for less than a decade, then you know some some people are like lifers when it yeah. comes to assisting. So it might be short in relation to what other people think. But you were shooting your own work all the time yeah. right, through that period. Yeah, that was one of my big things, actually, because there's a choice to kind of go and work with uh, one of the bigger photographers and then you won't be able to shoot anything because a lot of them don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have a steady income and it's a lot, a lot more comfortable way to live. And I just decided that that wasn't going to work for me because even when I was picture editing, I'd spend all my evenings working on my own stuff and weekends, which in the end is what made it unsustainable. Because I was like, whilst it's great to have that stable income, you, you know, if you've got your mind in two different places, you, you're kind of potentially just going to burn out at the end of it. Yeah, I remember when I knew you at that time, it it always seemed almost crazy to me that you were still assisting because you had so much, so many bodies of work, you had so many connections, you'd built up a really strong network. You were essentially set up and ready to go. Yeah. But did assisting become like a comfort blanket that you didn't want to leave the photographers that I've worked with are all close friends now and still continue to be so that makes it hard because you're actually just having a day out with your mate (laughs) and that's quite a hard thing to give up yeah um and still now I really miss that because I'll kind of go to the pub with Zed Nelson or you know um I've got a new studio in London Fields and John Short is in a studio above these are all people that I really like hanging out with um so giving that up was really hard for me and I think probably pushed my career back by about four years because <laughs> I really I knew too much fun I knew just knew I was happy and yeah. I was like if you're happy then why yeah why change things you're but, an exceptionally social person as well so you <laughs> kind of feed off all that energy right yeah and I think that that's still probably something that I struggle with now because it, it's there still is so much to learn and anybody that thinks oh you know, I've done it now, I know everything, they're probably slightly delusional. So still, I would like, I'd love to like tap people up now to be like, kind of come and assist on this massive still life set, because I won't know how to do certain things with it. But unfortunately, it gets to the point where people won't let you. <laughs> you know, you've got to do your own work. But what was so great about that process and how you did it, not only in terms of like the relationships you built and what you learned, is that when you actually stopped and released your work, it felt like you almost like exploded on the scene. You had two jobs. You weren't just assisting and a lot of people just assist and then dabble with their own work. But you were really committed to both things. Yeah, I think I'd already had a few waves of decision making. Like when I left the Royal College of Art, I had a lot of good opportunities come up then. 
also I had a tutor that really kind of took a shine to me when I was at Chelsea College of Art and so when I left there he'd got me to shoot stuff for their artist collective free and then that was exhibited in the ICA so you have those moments when you're young where you're like you know for me I'm very close to my family taking my mum and dad to the ICA or the design museum after studying to show them my work felt like a really big thing but I always some people at that point just had the confidence to just go off straight away and then they'd build a career when they're you know they're like 23 mm-hmm. and I love when I love seeing that in young photographers when they have that confidence but I wasn't that person I liked being away from everybody I liked being a bit of a hermit I, I've never applied for any competitions or awards until like two years ago and I'm I'm going to be 34 this year I really liked the kind of I guess the quietness of being out of all that noise and just getting on with my practice and having a really nice time with friends and stuff that I was working with at the time and not worrying about kind of the outside world um and yeah I think that's just it just depends on your temperament some people really love the glory and they're you know they're so hungry when they come out of uni and that just wasn't me at all I was still figuring out my place in the world I think and trying to think what why I was making work and I was always the opposite of the photographers maybe that I assisted because commissions always felt quite difficult for me because I always felt like there was something I wanted to say and I just needed to figure it out a bit longer maybe a decade was a bit too long to <laughs> not at doing all. it but it's impressive that you had the patience and you gave yourself the space to do that because that's one of the hardest things to do I think like yeah. just allow yourself that time yeah and still now it's kind of this last year was really busy and flying all over the place and I hadn't expected to be traveling to that many places um and this year I'm very much like it would be I've got a few commissions that are like ones to Mongolia and other, you know to quite quite far out places but I definitely feel like it's another time maybe to take myself back into the studio have a bit of quiet time and figure out what I'm trying to say this year as opposed to last year um, and for me, that'll always be a way. I think I'll always be staggering it and then trying to come out with something new rather than it just being kind of relentlessly doing commissions and probably doing the sensible thing of chasing money. <laughs> um, but that's the compromise I've chosen to do. So, Did you find it easy to trust your instincts? Does it come quite naturally to you? Um, yeah, well, I think I have quite an obsessive nature. So the second that I read something and it sparks something, however much I try and shelf it, it doesn't it doesn't work for me it kind of keeps going over in my mind I'll think about it when I go to bed it will be you know something that is niggling at me non-stop and then I'm like okay right all I have to do is find the money to do this if if it's not going to go away I just need to do it <laughs> and yeah. then it will be done you have got that real energy when you get an idea inside your head it's great. yeah so how what drew you to landscape in the first place um I think probably originally when I'd first when I finished my degree, my mum knew that I was going to be the eternal student. And so I decided to do my MA and she was, you know, we, we, we're not a family that has loads of money um, to just be able to study forever, like and go and do PhDs and everything else. She was like, if you're going to do your MA, firstly, you'll have to get a scholarship. And secondly, you need to know that you're paying for it. So I was like, okay. So I got a job at Tate, which I'm really glad that I got because it meant that at the RCA, there's lots of people that can kind of be working every day and then go to the bar every night. And then they have two years essentially of like bliss because they're not worrying about money. They can just do whatever they like. I wasn't that person. I was in like two or three days a week. And then I was working at Tate for four days a week to be able to pay for it. Wow. But that was really good for me because I, mean, I was always surrounded by art that really inspired me, especially landscape paintings. So 
originally I'd sat and worked on the ticket desk for ages. Then I'd worked in like the call centre section of it, the membership department. Um, but then they'd, somebody had found out I was at the RCA and then I started working um, for Tate Shots. So then it meant meeting the artists and making the videos for them. Oh, that's great. Which I'd just do on my own. So it'd be like me editing, me filming. And you'd, I'd just, you know, got this great job, basically, that a lot of people would have liked to have had when, you know, after they've studied, um, but doing it whilst I was studying. So I was constantly having to walk along the halls of Tate, looking at all of these amazing landscapes, you know, throughout history. And I'd always been interested in, you know, how we socially construct what a landscape is. That had kind of been my first, I think it was the first thing that brought me into photography. And so that had just kind of was very much stuck in my mind, I guess. Um, And then when you see these amazing pieces of art that, you know, in Nottingham, we have a little bit of it now because we've got Nottingham Contemporary, but nothing on the scale of London. And you really appreciate it because you've never had it before. Um, I think that that's kind of when special things happen, when you're just overexposed, and then it becomes the norm to be around them, I guess. There's something about their almighty presence when you see a huge photographic landscape and how it just resets everything about who you are, what you feel like as a person, your place in the world your interaction with the, the space and the environment around you, there's just something so overwhelming, which is kind of quite humbling. That yeah. As a viewer, I really enjoy. Yeah, I think as well, there's, uh, like, when I started doing my dissertation, I realised that what I was interested in was the sociology and anthropology, anthropological elements of landscape, I guess. And so I'd got more and more interested in um, things like Dean Cannell's leisure class, which is talking about people needing being so attached to the workbench that we almost feel isolated forget who we are um and for me that's landscape that's not only what I'm kind of asking questions about with other people it's also me figuring out who I am and what I am in the world and I think you know it can even be on a really trivial basis so with the holiday I say this quite a lot in my work but you know, it can be seen as our great escape message of our time. Like we'll work all year, then we get two weeks off in our full-time job and we'll go into some insane landscape to kind of feel alive. And I think that that's kind of, that's not something to be sniffed at because actually it is you trying desperately to find something tangible that makes you feel a part of a much bigger thing because so often we've just got our heads, you know, attached to phones or at computers and you start to feel really disengaged with everything so for me it's kind of cathartic I get to go out into these landscapes but also I get to show them to other people who I mean I've been that girl that's had two weeks off for the whole year and so it's insane I see so little of the world and I'm gonna have to go to Japan for two weeks to (laughs) feel alive alive. yeah No, we're both really obsessed with Joan Didion. Is that I really love that quote of hers, which is about people are formed by the landscape they grew up in. And I wondered how much Nottingham informed you, if it did in any way. I did a lot of weird stuff in Nottingham. Like I did a lot of weird stuff in Nottingham that even now I'm like, I don't know why people were even engaging with me because there's a massive power station in Nottingham called Ratcliffe on Saw. There was things like that when I was young. I mean, I'd be like 16 and I can remember just harassing a guy at the power station just day and night to let me go in. To It wasn't even to shoot it, it was just to see it because I was like, this is great. It's like these huge chimneys, which actually the train from London has to go up to get to East Midlands. Um, 
and then people playing golf in front of it, which is just completely ridiculous. So bizarre. <laughs> yeah. So bizarre. And then behind it, actually, which I don't think anybody has photographed, they, I don't know if it exists anymore, there used to be a marina and there'd be the dodgiest characters living in that marina. And I just used to think that that was like this magical place. I used to drive to it all the time, like take my mum and dad, take my brothers, take my boyfriend, try and get them to just stand in poses. To try and I, I was obviously trying to figure out what my eye was. Um, and luckily, everybody was very kind with me and just was like, okay, fine. She just wants to go and do this. Yeah. Um, but there was like, there was one point where I've got a friend that ended up being in um, a couple of Shane Meadows films. And I wanted to do something sculptural, but at the power station. So I didn't tell them that that was what I wanted to shoot. And I took this friend that's an actress and then she stood on a piece of foam board. Amazing. <laughs> on the golf course in front of the power station and everybody in the power station that was cut the workers were like, this I, This is just What's crazy. Going What's on? going on? And um, yeah, I was always had that like weird obsession with putting people into landscapes and trying to then figure out how I authored that image and it, at the beginning it was disastrous like some of the pictures I look back on now and I'm like this is the worst picture in the world but I would have only been about 17 yeah. so <laughs> it's all about forming your process really. yeah one thing I'm always fascinated with you is that you spend so much time on your own in these landscapes and there's nothing for miles and miles and miles <laughs> yeah. like I just don't understand how you don't go crazy like how how does that feel when you're in was, those moments, in the middle of Mongolia, for example. Well, I was talking to a friend the other day because I was saying, I think the only time that my mind is ever clean as a whistle is when I'm on my own really far away. The noise just stops in my head. And actually, in London, I do feel quite overwhelmed a lot of the time. And it does, there's, a, probably partly because I am very sociable, there's a lot of different noise all the time. Um and different people's opinions and, you know, different people's anxieties and the stress that people have. Like, being a creative in London isn't that easy, even though there's, you know, it's a great place to be for opportunities. But you're also surrounded by the best people. So you're always pushing yourself harder and harder. And, yeah, it took me a while to realise that actually that noise wasn't my, it's not, it's not my problem. Actually, when I'm away, I'm really peaceful and, you know that could get a bit weird if you're just on your own all the time and yeah. you start to, you know, you start to isolate yourself even when you're home. But um, I don't do that, so it's not a problem. But, yeah. I you get of, a real peace of mind when you're out in the Yeah, in and the it wild. makes me think about, you know, sometimes when you're in London, other people overwhelm you with their problems and then you can start to feel a bit down or fed up or start to think that you feel that way. And then actually it's just like osmosis and realise actually I'm pretty happy and <laughs> I'm really liberated over here yeah I t- like I mean the f- when I went to shoot Universal Experience which is probably like my first big push for my own work that was brand new work it wasn't going from like my archive um I was right in the mid well just at near the end of quite a big split up that had caused a lot of stress and so I think that that was I partly think the picture editor that sent me sent me on it because she knew my personal life a bit and was kind of trying to help me and be like, right, just go off, make something and then come back. And I think that that's why it worked out so well, because suddenly I was like, wow, I feel, you know, there's all the weight lifted off me of all of these things that, you know, we put pressure on ourselves about. Um, you know, being a certain age, thinking about whether you've got a partner, all the, you know, all the stuff. stuff. Yeah, and also the stuff that can really suppress you when you're trying to be creative. 
if you've got that going on in the background. And yeah, that was that was incredible because I was just I just walked around China and Mongolia for two months completely on my own and made work and was unaffected by anything else and could kind of got a much broader picture what the world is and also how small my problems were at the time. Um, and so it is or, almost a, a form of therapy, I'd say. Just getting into that zone in terms of where where you make your best work as well and how clear your head is. You're listening to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. So can you talk a little bit about Universal Experience and what that project is about? It came about because of a commission that I was doing for Patek Philippe magazine. Um, And they originally had wanted me to go and shoot the same route as a Victorian photographer called Isabella Bird. Um, And whilst I was out there, it was basically going and retracing her steps. So I'd warn them in advance, like, oh, if, you know, if we're retracing steps from Victorian times, I could, it could be a brick wall in China, probably will be. Um, And she was quite an interesting character because she was very, I'd say she was very unhappy and unhealth, like she'd had a lot of problems and it was very much about travel being a healing process, um, which then was, drew parallels to my own life at the time. Um, but alongside doing that commission, I then just ended up traveling because it was across the whole of China. This, it wasn't a small commission. And I don't think any of us had fully, I, I mean, I kind of knew how big it was, but fully absorbed how much I'd be traveling around China. Um, and at the same time, made personal work, which was universal experience. Um, and that was really looking at how we try and control the land or our, our very lame attempts to control the land and turn different um terrains into kind of i don't like theme parks for contemporary consumption i guess how we try yeah how we try and basically choreograph places to be tourist destinations um and the way that people behave in those destinations but also looking at the different gazes of the monuments that are built around China, because there's so much history there and there's so many attempts to, you know, to kind of cover up invasions and, you know, bad things that have happened in the past that in China, people are very much separated from their history. And we all know that we've all seen projects on it. But I think I was trying to do it on a, on a more personal level. It wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to go to these. One thing I really, I'm really not interested in in my work, even though I like it in other people sometimes, is just the idea of abandoned China, because I think there's so much more to it than that. Um, and it's actually about the narratives of people's lives to the lands that is the thing that that project was about. That's what um, excites you. It's yeah, like human connection as well. Yeah, and, and but then ironically, and maybe that was my mindset at the time. They uh, the places were very desolate, so <laughs> there was hardly any people there. And I had people laughing at me, saying, "Is it because you've been going through a bit of a split up that people are so far away?" And I was like, <laughs> "No, it's just because these are huge expanses." Yeah. Um, but I think that I was really happy with that project at the end because. It had very very much been done on intuition, even though I knew what my angle was. I hadn't planned to the places that I'd visited in advance. I hadn't researched things. It was very much get to China, do the commission that I've been sent out there to do, and then have all this freedom to actually wander around, you know, 
the great thing about China is that you can get a high-speed train so you can go from the top to the bottom of China if you find something there, that you know, a story there that you think is interesting. And that really worked out for me. And I think that's the first time I realised that that's the way I should always work, um, is just to follow my intuition and give myself more time, just give myself two months or three months, you know, and live really, really frugally rather than, you know, some photographers prefer to go for like 10 days and would never want to stay longer than 10 days, but they can just plow money into it. And that, yeah, that's the reverse for me. I've got to really like put my time into it. So how do you make a decision when you're there? What's governing you, like your thoughts in terms of taking you from one place to another? Well, I think a lot of trips that I've done has been talking to people about places. So say there was like a huge... um Buddha in Lishan that I mean I went into that town not knowing anything about it and I went in the middle of the night and it felt like the strangest place on earth there was people built like making small fires along the streets like in the pitch black and I'd just be walking around feeling really confused because it's almost like I'd gone into like some weird vampire film <laughs> And then you suddenly will get like a bus that will take 10 hours or something. And then there's just this huge monument that's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, that wasn't in Lashan, but there was one I went to where it was in the absolute middle of nowhere. So I walked to the top of this monument and then there's a picture that I've taken that's looking out from the monument. And it's not a very interesting picture because there is nothing there. It's just this vast plateau of nothingness. But they've built this huge this huge monument that's looking out and nothing and when I find moments like that I'm like okay this like this is definitely what I'm looking for because also I know it hasn't I know it hasn't been shot by many other people because I would have seen it um and also the picture that's looking out into nothing only I know about that because it's not something that I've put anywhere but in terms of the themes of my work and if I were to go back there maybe make a film or something that's exactly the emotion I'm trying to provoke in people because it's not, um, my worst thing with art is when somebody's trying to make art that's very didactic. Because mm-hmm. I think if you're making didactic art, what's the point? Like, you, it should be open for question. And so moments like that where there's this really strange crossover between like the old and the new and the fake and the real. And no, there's there's no answers being given. It's just saying how truly bizarre humans can be. That's, you know... That's my niche area. That's your fascination. <laughs> yeah, that's my obsession. That's what you're aiming for. Yeah, and maybe how I feel a lot of the time, completely perplexed by the things that we do and the places we go to, you know, to kind of find a release. What's your process like when you're there? And like you said, you just found this, you found this monument, you found this moment. Do you stick around for a couple of days and you're shooting at different times a day or how do you... Uh, it depends from place to place. So say the lithium mining in the Atacama Desert, that, I mean, I've never experienced anything like that in my life before. The colours changed every single time I turned around. Wow. So with that, I was getting up. I'd, I'd decided to stay in the workers' camp rather than in a hotel or something, um, which kind of was a mistake because I would get back at midnight and then I'd get up at 4am every day for a week. And every single time that I turned around, the colours would change. So from 4am right up until the end of the day, everything was constantly in transition. So then I was shooting loads because it, you know, there wasn't a like, oh, I've done that section because actually everything was changing. Yeah. Um, But then there's other places where I'll go to and it's just, I'll just go and I'll shoot all of the different perspectives. But essentially I don't need to hang out there all day because I've got the shot I need. And especially in China, I feel like that quite a lot because the light is beautiful a lot of the time. Right. 
So, and you, you know, you do because of the pollution and it's why people love shooting in China. There is always this softness to the images. So it's not hard to take a good shot in China, basically. So <laughs> you don't need she to, says. you don't need to hang around. Right. <laughs> you don't need to hang around. Whereas maybe if you're in Europe somewhere, like say, um, when I was in Austria, you know, the light, the light can be quite boring in Europe. So sometimes, so you want to wait at the beginning or the end of the day or, you know, yeah, time out yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. there's What's interesting about what you just said is that there's always a real physicality to the projects you take on, either like you're trekking around and like there for two months and that's physically and emotionally and mentally draining, or you're putting yourself, you know, you're putting yourself in the workers' camp, which you didn't have to do. Yeah. But there's something about you which seems to thrive in like being as close to the source as possible. Sometimes I think I'm a bit uncomfortable. If I know, I know I'm uncomfortable with the whole photographer staying in a posh hotel thing. Fair enough. <laughs> and I, I find it really weird as well. If you're then going to go and be, because I do think when you're taking portraits, especially of workers you're collaborating with them and they have so much pride most of the time in the places that they're taking you around that you kind of owe it to them I think to be like yeah I'm interested in your life and so I want to absorb as much of your life as possible rather than I think if I just rocked up from a nice hotel took a load of shots then left went back to my nice hotel was in the sauna in the swimming pool having nice food then went back to their life and did that for a week I'd feel I just wouldn't I wouldn't feel very good about myself so I think that's part of it. And also, you know, you find other stories. I'm all, whatever commission I'm doing, no matter what it's for, I'm always thinking about shooting my own work as well. So there's always more stories to be found by immersing yourself in things. Do you have rituals while you're away, like coping rituals? A gin and tonic. <laughs> <laughs> Can you get a gin and tonic anywhere? <laughs> yeah. I think I just work, I work really hard when I'm away. And that's my thing that makes me fit because then it makes me feel justified for being away. Whereas if I was being lazy, I wouldn't feel like it was very fair to be away from, you know, my family and my partner and things. It, I'd, I'd, feel a bit like I was taking the piss I think <laughs> yeah utterly focused yeah and I think also it's kind of say with the workers camps in the Atacama the workers that are there I think that he only gets to see his family like every one weekend or two weekends out of every month wow. the rest of the time he's working that makes me cope better no matter how tired I am that you know I'm making a connection with some a real connection with people I guess recently came to learn how much research is really important to your practice and how bloody deep you go when you <laughs> right. get one of those hooks. How does that inform your work? I honestly just don't know how people make projects without doing the research because for me, then wouldn't even really feel like mine, I don't think. I think it's I think it's a comfort blanket more than anything. I mean, if you can go and not do any research, take some incredible shots and then be able to talk about why you've made that, that's great. But I would have no idea why I'd made it. I feel really grateful for having a fine art background. It's because I was relentlessly interrogated every Thursday when I was at Chelsea and at the RCA about why I was doing it. You know, what's the point in it? I was surrounded by a lot of posh painter boys that kind of hated photography. Right. And so we had these very... I mean, they used to give me serious anxiety every Thursday because I knew it was going to be an hour-long argument and I was quite shy at the time um, about, you know, painting versus photography or what I was trying to do in my photograph that I couldn't do in a painting. And, you know, 
whether it was just a representation or if I was just stealing a moment or what that moment was about. And I think that that, whilst being horrendous at the time and I hated them, has really, is kind of a steadfast way for me to work now where it's thinking, okay, if somebody absolutely hated this picture or they hated this project, what are the questions that they're going to ask me? What are the, you know, what are the pitfalls that they're going to use to try and trip me up? And so I think I do that back to front now where I'm already doing that before I even make the work to figure out whether it's a good idea. Um, There's a lot of rigour in that. Yeah. And also, I guess it's just it's making sure that I'm not ever just looking at things aesthetically, because then for me, that would be a real issue. Um, It's great if aesthetically it looks it looks nice. But if that's my main aim, then it's pretty shallow reason to make work. And so I guess I give myself a hard time about that. Do you ever research things and leave it because for some reason you're turned off by it or it's not what you thought? If I see that there's loads of other people have covered that area, then I kind of veto it because I'm I'm like, well, if, if I'm not giving a new voice to this subject, then can I really spend, you know, some of the projects I'll spend like six years on, can I <laughs> justify I be, all that Should I be spending that time on? That's a smart yeah. question. <laughs> Recently, in the last couple of years, portraiture has also become like a facet of your work. How did that come about? That was t- definitely by accident. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I assisted people that were really heavily into portraiture. I never really found my feet, I don't think, with portraiture in a studio. Um, and I was really lucky to learn off people that were, you know, they're amazing at lighting and they have then and they really were relentless about trying to pull something out of a person that you know isn't there at first sight and though you know really almost like a composer just kind of trying to pull emotions out of them or slightly move the hand or slightly move the finger or just the you know moving the chin a little bit and then seeing what was there and I used to love watching photographers do that but I realised that it was that that wasn't me. That was because I love not having to tell somebody what to do. Um, and I think that it was interesting watching photographers that have come from quite commercial backgrounds, and then say a photographer maybe like Zed Nelson because he kind of lets people do what they want to do, um, and isn't trying to control them much at all. It's more of a true of, collaboration. Yeah, and I. I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way with that because as the people that maybe from more commercial backgrounds make exceptional pictures and exceptional portraits that I couldn't I couldn't do, I don't think at the moment because it's not the way I'm looking at the world. But then I went to, um, got sent on a commission to the Caribbean in Nevis and the light was so amazing there and the people were so interesting there that suddenly it was kind of like everything came to life for me a bit and the things that I had found complicated with portraiture or that I'd feel a bit conflicted about, I suddenly found my way of doing it. And then I got quite hooked on it then because I, it, it it was merging the things that I cared about. It was the land. It was a project that was on the potential of geothermal energy. It was people that were working, you know, in farming and around the island trying to do things to, to help it. Um, and then... Also, just random people that you would just stop when you're walking along the road or you know near the beach. Characters. Yeah, and and then and the pictures there are really, I'm I'm really proud of those pictures because they're really simple pictures, but actually they say a lot. And it's because it's not me trying to influence them; 
it, it is something quite authentic about that person and that place. And then I think that other people then realised, oh, you know, that is her thing. She's, they are quite, you know, they're quite composed shots, but that's because I'm looking at it from a landscape point of view, but doing portraiture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, rather than running around and using the lights in the studio, I'm just using my feet to try and figure out what composition is going to work and what places and getting the right backdrops, but from the real world. And yeah, that was a bit of a revelation. I think for me as well, I, I had no idea that that would be the work I was going to make. Um, That's so exciting when that happens. Yeah. And also it came off the back of something quite ridiculous, which is the fact that when I went to Nevis, I'd been told, you know, it might be quite a difficult story because we're doing geothermal energy, but that's under the ground. Well, I got sent to wind farm and then they only had two wind turbines, one of which was laying down on the ground. So I was like, okay, that was my that was my visual and I can't use it. And then we went to kind of the hot springs, but it looked a bit like a just a little swamp. That was the only like that was the only visual clue that I could give in a shot to be like, this is about geothermal energy. So it had to be about the people. So it was kind of, you know, on the back back foot. I don't know if that's a saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were a bit on the back foot. A bit on the back foot, trying to figure out how I do this commission in a good way. And so then I just had to make the decision, right, it's about the people. It's not, it's not going to be about the wind farm because nobody, I don't think anybody wants to look at this picture <laughs> of one wind turbine with one Sad lying one on the, on the floor. Yeah, while I'm trying to say that this is, this is what this island's all about. So, so, yeah. is, so has that changed things for you in terms of how you think about your practice now? Has it opened up a new aspect of it? Yeah, I think, well, I think that people, I think people trust me now that they can send me away maybe on difficult commissions and that I'll find a way to tell the story. And I guess that's probably a skill set that I didn't realise I had until recently, which is that maybe the fact that I do research stuff a lot means that I am able to build narratives from places where sometimes, you know, we might be clutching at straws slightly. But I think that that's like a that's definitely something that people have confidence in me about now because picture editors told me, oh, we'll send you here because even if this happens, I know that you'll make something else of it. So, yeah, it's become another skill in yeah. your toolbox. Having travelled around the world so much, has there ever been an image that you didn't take but you kind of now, it stayed with you or you wished you had? I feel like there's probably been lots. Because <laughs> I think one of the things that annoys me most, especially when I'm travelling around Asia because I can't drive a car in China and that's a real frustration for me because I will do things when I haven't got much money. So it's just on foot and trying to get around. And I see shots from trains a lot because a train is actually a really, really lovely perspective. You You've raise that above everything. Picture window yeah, as well. It's completely clear view, which yeah. is always like I'll climb up mountains and then there'll be a load of trees in the way. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> so I think there's probably been a lot of shots from trains. I don't know if there's one specific one, I know that there was a huge, huge power plant in China that I went past on a train and I thought, I just wish I could climb off this train. But I don't know the name of the power plant. But yeah, there's definitely been shots that... And also on aeroplanes, I get very frustrated. Going it, flying into Mongolia actually this year and flying into the Middle East, I got very frustrated because there's these amazing shots and you're looking out the window, but you're never going to get there. Like if well, you, you could never just know. float, it'd be brilliant. <laughs> you might start shooting from the sky soon. You've been doing a bit of that recently. <laughs> yeah, with that's your, true. Uh, waterfall. <laughs> it could happen. Helicopters. I know, but I do get a little bit of motion sickness. So I'm not sure how much more. It's I'm not the best combo. Yeah. Is there a bit of advice you would give yourself if you know ten years ago or when you were starting out? 
that things now that you know that you wish you'd known then? I think probably the advice I would give myself is to have just been a bit more confident. I can remember a good friend of mine that actually had been really successful fashion filmmaker when I was at the RCA um, called Catherine Ferguson was saying to me, you can just learn on the job. And she's always been quite a big uh, driving force in somebody that's always tried to push me forward. And when, especially when I was a lot shyer, always try to tell me that it's okay to just, you know, to try and just be a bit of a hustler and get on with it. Um, and I just, I never listened to her because I always thought, no, no, I, I need to, I need to learn it all first. I need to learn it all first. And then, then I'll start doing stuff. But actually she was totally right. It's fine to learn on the job. And also if you have um, close friends that also do similar things to you, they're not going to let you mess up. So if you have that network, you can go out there quite early on. You don't have to be this expert on everything because that's not how art works. It's not a science. So you might make something incredible completely by accident. And that's what's beautiful about it. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.